Good morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I'm joined by our co-host, Lena Ben-Abdallah, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida, and Yiting Wang, our resident China sustainability specialist. Yiting, Lena, how are you guys doing? Doing great, Winslow. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing fantastic. I'm in rural Virginia. My wife and I went to a winery, and uh, it's quite peaceful. All right. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Technology transfer is one of as one of the most potentially beneficial aspects of the China-Africa relationship. But how many training centers, visits to China, etc., actually deliver on that promise? Jun Sun, who is a MPhil candidate at the University of Oxford's Oxford Department of International Development, where she studies uh, international development, recently authored a policy brief on that subject for the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies China-Africa Research Initiative, or CICE-CARI, as uh, podcast listeners are familiar with. And that policy brief is entitled Technology Transfer in Telecommunications, Barriers and Opportunities in the Case of Huawei and ZTE in South Africa. Uh, June is originally from Xi'an, and she is working on China-Africa Internet Governance in the Future, although we can't say when or where that, will, that work will actually be published yet. In the meantime, though, June, welcome so very much to the pod. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you're in London or? I'm in Oxford. In Oxford. Okay. Oxford is not London. Sorry. (laughs) It's nearly London. Uh, Very close. uh, Thank you. Thank you for that save. Um, (laughs) So let's get to this. First of all, a practical question for our listeners. How did you get involved with Sice Carey? What? is the process for writing a policy brief for them? Um, so like a lot of listeners to the podcast, I'm sure I am a big fan of Saiz Kari and the work that they're doing at Johns Hopkins. So um, I'm subscribed to their sort of various social media channels um, and Deborah's mailing list. And they send uh, out... Can, can you updates. introduce Deborah? Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, and I'm subscribed to Deborah Browdigam's mailing list. And Deborah Browdigam is... Um, a well-known China-Africa scholar um, who is based at Johns Hopkins. Uh, And if you don't follow her blog, I really recommend you do. Um, And she sends out updates for things that Saiz Kari is doing. And one of the things that they do is, um, I think it's called the China-Africa Fellowship, whereby they fund researchers to go do fieldwork on China-Africa topics. And so I applied for this um, and very fortunately received uh, a fellowship and so um, had really good support from Saiz Kari throughout my my field work and the writing of my thesis. Um, And the process of writing a policy brief is when you come back from field work, then you kind of um, write them a a short sort of field work report telling them what you did and what how you, you know, what you found thing, uh, what you found in the field. Um, and if they like it, then uh, it'll get edited into a policy brief, which is, involves kind of a couple months of writing and editing back and forth. But the editors are really, really supportive at Saiz Kari. Um, 
so yeah, anybody who's interested in China Africa and has a good idea for a fieldwork project, I really recommend you keep an eye out for for any opportunities that Sizekari has to offer. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for for that breakdown. I, I do want our listeners to know that that fellowship is extremely competitive. So yeah. not only do you have to have a good idea, you have to have a really good application. So congratulations, June. Thank you. Um, and before um, before we actually dig into the meat of the policy brief, could you help us understand what technology transfer means and aims to achieve? broadly speaking. Absolutely. So um, the concept of technology transfer is quite a popular one in international development theory and also in economics. And the idea is that people used to think that um, as economies grew, the technologies would kind of also grow automatically. But obviously, we know that now that that's not the case. Um, And actually, for, you know, economic development to have sort of purposeful movements of technology transfer is really important. Um, And so it's a tricky concept to define. People have different definitions for it, but I use quite a broad definition in my my research, which includes sort of both the machinery and the actual technology, as well as human knowledge around um, how to use these technologies and how to manage people around these technologies and that kind of thing. Um, And the idea of technology transfer is that you move this body of knowledge from either a firm um, or some sort of other organization or another country to another firm or organization to or a country. Um, and this movement allows the latter to become more productive um, and therefore to sort of develop um, more efficiently uh, is the gist of it. And obviously in China, Africa, a lot of the conversation has been around whether or not the economic activities on the continent from the Chinese side is going to be beneficial in the long run. And a big important part of this is whether there's actually any skills, knowledge, technology being transferred over for long-term sustainable growth. Um, and so that was an angle that I was particularly interested in and, and was keen to explore. Excellent. And can you talk about how technology transfer applies to information communication technology or ICT? Yes, absolutely. Um, so technology transfer is kind of the the, you know, the starting point for ICT to kind of even begin. Um, you, what was, um, it's, a, it's a very broad field. Um, actually, ICT is. So I, I'll actually, maybe I'll just talk about sort of the specific subfield that I worked on so as not to say any sort of things that aren't accurate. Um, so my research focused on um, telecommunications equipment, which is um, within ICT, it's, it's the sort of, the base stations and the cables um, and the sort of connecting infrastructural um, equipment that is laid down as a sort of foundational network for um, other ICT uh, industries to kind of operate on it. Um, And I was, for for me, um, technology transfer was a way into this sector because um, so in the the telecommunications equipment industry, you have sort of the well-known big multinational companies such as Nokia and Ericsson um, who make the the equipment. And traditionally, there is a significant amount of technology transfer between these guys and their their, um, clients, which are sort of operators. So the idea is that because the the work that they do is so technologically intensive, there needs to be a really sort of... um, dense and in-depth 
uh, collaboration between the engineers of telecommunications equipment uh, vendors and their clients. And so my original oh, thinking so, was... Sorry to interrupt. What's a technology equipment vendor? So sorry, I should, clar- I should clarify that first. So, um, so the telecommun- in the telecommunications equipment sector, you have vendors and operators on two sides of the business. So telecommunications equipment vendors are the ones who make the equipment. So they make the cables and the base stations and lay them down. And the operators are the sort of Vodacoms and EEs and AT&Ts of the world who run the actual networks and they sell to clients in the end. So as end users, as, as customers, we don't actually ever interface directly with the equipment vendors, right? So that's a kind of business to business side of the telecommunications industry. Um, and so I was interested in sort of this, um, telecommunications vendor and telecommunications operator relationship because that is a technologically very intense relationship so my thinking was that there you would see quite a lot of traditionally you see a lot of transfer back and forth um, on various aspects of the business and so I wondered if this was also the case between Chinese telecommunications equipment vendors and African operators perfect hey, thank you so much for that clarification all right so June could could you please give us an overview of your policy brief and Admittedly, it's only four pages long, so it doesn't really need that much of an overview. But uh, what evidence did you use? Um, so the policy brief is really based on my master's thesis, um, and that is based on three months of field work that I conducted in South Africa last year, 20, 2015. Um, I was in mainly in Johannesburg for those three months, uh, also some, some work in Pretoria and Cape Town. Um, And so the way I collected my evidence was uh, using qualitative research. So I mostly uh, used um, semi-structured interviews and I interviewed, I conducted over 50 interviews um, with sort of the main vendors and operators and uh, smaller ICT companies um, and also some analysts and academics in the, in the sector. Um, And so the, the policy brief kind of outlines the research methods that I did and um, then talks about the three main findings um, of my research. Um, the first of which is that um, the South African ICT industry, particularly the telecommunications industry, is signing more and more managed services contracts um, with Chinese vendors. Um, and this um, basically means that the operators are, um, which um, for those who don't know, in South Africa, there are two very, very big and famous um, mobile operators called MTN and Vodacom. Um, they operate quite widely across the continent in other markets as well. There's a small and mobile operator called CellC, um, and they have a fixed line operator, which is a state-owned company called Telcom. Um, and so these guys all work with uh, Huawei and ZTE, which are the two big Chinese um, telecoms uh, equipment vendors. And um, in so my first finding was that the operators are signing a lot more uh, managed services contracts, which means that they outsource the management and the upkeep of the equipment back to Huawei and ZTE. So they buy the equipment, they sign these very long contracts, and then Huawei and ZTE do a lot of the upkeep in coming years. Um, and further, further to this, Huawei and ZT also offer incredibly competitive financing packages. Now, this is something that all um, telecommunications vendors do. So I think Ericsson was actually the Swedish company was the first company to ever uh, package financing with sort of the offers that they make. Um, but the difference is um, that 
Huawei and ZTE as Chinese vendors, first of all, they offer sort of far better pricing. Um, and they also have access to China state-backed loans. Um, so obviously their whole packaging is a lot more competitive than uh, the, the European uh, vendors who were previously in the market, which is which is essentially why they have had such an enormous success um, in, in Africa. Um, and in terms of um, the managed services impact on uh, technology transfer is actually quite significant because obviously now the vendors themselves don't need as many engineers around to sort of keep the upkeep uh, of the of their equipment. So a lot of the technical work is just being done by Huawei and ZTE's own engineers. Um, and the second main finding was that um, there was a significant amount of contesting for legitimacy. So you find that Huawei and ZTE are two Chinese companies who are competing in a market that was established completely without any Chinese or African agents. So this was an this was an industry established by European and American companies. And so you find that they are sort of struggling a lot to to face some of the stigma that is attached to them for being Chinese. And that sometimes this actually doesn't have anything to do with the uh, equipment that they have, which is very, very good. But they, they still struggle to sort of overcome this uh, this contestation for legitimacy. And you, you find that because of these sort of cultural contestations in the workplace, um, sometimes their South African counterparts uh, deny them this legitimacy. And this impacts on technology transfer from the vendor to the operator. And then my final finding was that um, South Africa itself um, has a relatively weak institutional framework, and it doesn't really assist in the, te- the transfer of technology from telecommunications vendors to operators. Um, and this is, you know, has sort of various historical uh, sources and reasons for this. Um, but basically, ICT policy is, is not of a, a greatly high priority in the South African policy space. Um, and there is a sort of over-reliance on some existing policies that aren't actually particularly effective in transferring technology over from from, from foreign companies. Um, and yeah, it's a complex issue. But um, yeah, so those are the three main findings from my research and that are outlined in the policy brief. Um, so my question, uh, June, would be about the second finding. You mentioned this uh, stigma of made in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite, I think it's, it's, it's something that could actually apply, uh, to cases beyond, uh, South Africa, this, this stigma of the quality of, um, this material coming from China. So I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on some of the techniques that you saw Huawei and ZTE apply to, 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 to actually overcome the stigma. Um, what, what did you observe, um, you know, from your field work in South Africa about how to overcome these stereotypes and the stigma um, uh, related to the made in China? Sure. Um, so the stigma, you know, what I observed in my fieldwork was that um, oftentimes you'd have Huawei and ZT making really cutting edge sort of world class equipment, but they still can't shake this made in China stigma. So you'd have assumptions that because this equipment came from China, it's not as good. Um, and also you'd have sort of... Uh, sort of um, ideas that sometimes the engineers from the Chinese side perhaps didn't speak English fluently or the managers from the Chinese side don't speak English fluently. And they would assume that because of this, um, the engineers perhaps don't know their, their perhaps aren't that uh, highly skilled. Um, 
And so one way that Huawei actually overcame this was that in the training center that they operate in, in Johannesburg, um, they only hire local trainers. So this is a, the, so the training center for a bit of context is, is a really important part of any telecoms op, uh, vendors business because not only do you have to sell your equipment, you have to teach people how to run the equipment, right? So you have to put a lot of money and effort into training people to do this. Um, and in, in Huawei's case, um, the people I interviewed at the training center all were all South African. So they, so the trainers or the trainees or both or the trainers were all South Africans. The trainees actually come from all parts of the region. So it's the sort of training center for all of Southern Africa. So you'd have clients coming in from Mozambique and from elsewhere. Um, but the trainers themselves were South African. So this was a purposeful move after a few years of experimentation from Huawei that they decided that the feedback was coming in, that people did not want Chinese trainers, that there was kind of a cultural gap and a cultural wall. Um, and so they only have sort of local trainers. And obviously you still have um, sort of language barriers there because if you have sort of trainees coming in from Mozambique and you have a South African trainers, there's still going to be various cultural and language barriers there. Uh, but nonetheless, it seems to have alleviated some of the some of the cultural gap between China and Southern Africa. Um, and you found that the I found that the feedback coming in from the trainees about the training center was actually overall quite positive. Um, for ZT, however, they don't have a training center and a lot of the job is a lot of the training is on the job. Um, so I found that they sort of were less successful in dealing with this 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 issue um, that people kind of have this cultural gap or cultural wall, if you will, in communicating with them. This almost sounds like the localization, like the focus on localizing the product for the host country, right? So what Huawei is doing, like bringing in trainees yes, from, yeah. and, I mean, trainers from, from the host country and trying to apply the, 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 the product to Absolutely. put it in the context of the host country. So I guess that's actually a really good um, model to explore for like further applications like beyond like uh, ICT and beyond yeah. the yeah. of Huawei. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good example of localization. Absolutely. June, would you be able to speculate why ZTE might not be following Huawei's um, mm -hmm. model? And and Huawei's got an interesting relationship to the Chinese state, but they're not quite as state-owned, I would say, as ZTE. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious whether something like that might be an issue, or I'm just wildly speculating, sure. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> no, 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 you're absolutely right. So um, so there's a few things to contextualize here about Huawei and ZTE. And the first is exactly what you're talking about. Their their ownership structures are different. So Huawei is, uh, well, let's start with ZTE. ZTE is a state-owned company. Huawei is a private company, but it's employee-owned. Um, what makes it, what makes sort of people question whether or not it's private is because Huawei quite clearly has a access to Chinese state owned state funding and B has quite a lot of state support when it comes to globalization. So this is, this is not your typical private corporation that you would find from, you know, somewhere other than China, basically. Um, so these are, these, these, this does have consequences for how they then operate. Um, and the second thing to contextualize is that within the South African market, Huawei is, considerably more successful. So Huawei entered the South African market much earlier and it ha it is a much bigger presence um, and it works, it has a larger slice of the South African market, basically the ZTE. ZTE entered the market much later than Huawei. 
Um, and very interestingly, actually, ZTE started using Huawei's own pricing uh, tools against it. So Huawei first came in, slash prices to take away businesses from Ericsson. And uh, then ZTE came in, slice, pri- slice prices to try and take on Huawei. So a lot of people tend to group them into the same category as, oh, these are the two Chinese telecoms companies. But actually, they, you know, are fiercely competitive, both domestically and, and abroad. Um, and so I think the reason that um, ZTE didn't have quite the same sort of localization level in their training training um, as Huawei is uh, firstly because they are smaller. So they've been there a less amount of, few, a less amount of time and, um, and they just haven't sort of had as much scope to expand and localize in the way that Huawei has. And secondly, it's to do with the ownership structure. So you do find that um, unlike Huawei, Z, uh, more of ZTE's decisions need to be fed back to Shenzhen and then they come back to South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. So you from I found that you know some of the people within the Johannesburg office in ZT did know very well. They knew what they needed to do, but they were often constrained by the fact that well, you know, Shenzhen doesn't want us to do this, or Shenzhen doesn't prioritize this, so we can't we can't do this. Um, you do find that people know exactly what need they need to do to to better localize, and they really want to. The people who work in the Joburg office really want to, um, but this wasn't something that they could realistically do. Um, and so you find that the in in Huawei, the sort of local employment level was about 60%, whereas in ZT is only about 40%. Makes sense. I actually also noticed how um, Huawei in, um, in in other countries, in Ethiopia and Algeria, are the cases where I noticed this. Um, Huawei is actually really integrated in the local community. And they sponsor cultural events. They uh, help sponsor um, competitions for for young people. Um, they're also very integrated with the um, Confucius Center, I mean, Institute in, in Addis Ababa University. They actually have lines of employment for students who gra- graduate from the institute. Um, they're, they, they're really integrated from what I saw, actually. Uh, I think mm, it's a, yeah. yeah, I think it's a pretty good uh, kind of research uh, line to just follow the, the model and, and uh, kind of find you know ways to extrapolate from that. Mm. Absolutely. And June, I am um, curious, actually, if you are able to sort of look into the history of how um, Huawei and ZTE have also benefited from, um, you know, the liberal liberalization and internationalization of Chinese um, companies um, and, and, and the Chinese market that helps these companies to become you know, emerging multinational companies themselves. So, you know, do you, do you see how how potential they, they are um, both recipient, uh, the both beneficiaries of um, technology transfer that was brought um, in by um, the traditional MNCs, um, and then how they are potentially you know mimicking what they have benefited into their new markets. Um. Sure. I must, I must first just qualify and say that I'm actually not an expert in, um, that transition period of Chinese multinationals. So, so the nineties when these two companies were really rising. Um, and so I'm actually not, you know, I'm, uh, I admit to possibly not knowing everything, um, that, that allowed these two companies to become what they are today. But from what I understand, um, the two, com- the Huawei and ZTE benefited enormously from, sort of China's very, first of all, China's very 
um, clear strategic decision to invest in ICT, to invest in um, building up national capacity in this industry. Um, so they were prioritized and they have always received an enormous amount of support. And second of all, I think they both also benefited from sort of the forced, um, um, the forced joint ventures that needed to be signed by foreign ICT companies if they wanted to enter the Chinese market in the 1990s. Um, so this is something that um, you don't see being replicated in a lot of countries today now who don't have developmental states. So where they don't have the capacity to sort of force these joint ventures up upon them. Um, so a joint venture in... Uh, yeah, elaborate a little bit more, more on what do you mean by developmental states? Um, sure. I think so, it's a quite technical term. Yeah. Um, so um, what I mean by developmental state is, is, a, is a government such as uh, China, such as that of, say, Singapore is another classic one, where you have quite a sort of... Um, highly uh, highly powerful and sort of very high capacity state. So the state has a large degree of control and it is able to enforce policies um, that are quite sort of uh, widely reaching um, down to various sectors. Um, I think Ethiopia would fall in that category in terms of opportunity. Yeah, I would agree, yeah. Um, so this is actually quite instrumental in sort of forcing um, joint ventures during a time when a lot of Chinese industries desperately needed the, the, the transfer of technology to themselves from, from other foreign companies. Um, I do think there's been some research into the fact that Huawei and ZTE actually were um, at some point neglected or there was something that was quite surprising about their eventual rise. Um, out of, you know, to become such two enormously successful companies. In fact, probably two of the most successful companies to globalize out of China. Um, but yeah, I, I must admit that I don't know <laughs> that much about that part. If I recall correctly, uh, Huawei is quite interesting because it wasn't actually a national champion. And that, um, and that uh, the Chinese government for a long time wasn't quite a fan of Huawei and, and Huawei had to really, um, really work hard in, in the Chinese countryside and rural areas to develop a, um, a business model that worked. Um, and so uh, they have a very interesting relationship to the Chinese government that um, for a lot of people following Chinese businesses, uh, Huawei is quite unique. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think getting a job uh, at Huawei out of their African offices has become a very desirable thing. You know, I think I've, I've had people coming to ask me to, you know, could you help me get a job at Huawei as this, you know, really now, you know, so that it's like the new Apple in town. Um, so I, I think it's quite tremendous what they have been able to achieve in terms yes. of If you're listening, Huawei, we would love for you to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> so just contact me after the recording. Yeah. And I just on that note, I think it's also it was interesting to know in South Africa um, just how big and how successful they were, especially in comparison to Europe. And I guess especially in comparison to the U.S., which is a market they haven't really entered. I remember the so when I landed in Johannesburg for field work um, and I was walking through or Tambo Airport um, and I think on the left side were huge posters for Standard Bank and then on the right side were huge posters for Huawei all the way down 
the arrival <laughs> hall. So I felt immediately, you know, like I've come to the right place to do this research. <laughs> I think Huawei is, yeah, it, it's, it, it has expanded really tremendously throughout the continent. So, yeah, it's gotten big. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, uh, you know, the discussion of the developmental state uh, could also lead to our next question around, um, you know, you mentioned the broad-based, South Africa's broad-based black economic empowerment policy is a, is a very key institutional framework in South Africa that affects the outcomes of technology transfer. Mm-hmm. And so... I guess, you know, could, could you maybe, um, tell us what, what's your, um, policy recommendations in terms of how you could have a smarter policy to, um, to, you know, prioritize some of these outcomes? And, and also, uh, curiously, we are interested in your, um, sort of assessments of the recent elections in South Africa and how that might have affected the future of the ICT industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so broad-based Black Economic Empowerment, or BBBE, is um, a set of laws that was put in place after 1994, which um, aims to correct the historical injustices of apartheid. Um, and it's a very broad-reaching law. Um, and foreign companies such as Huawei and ZTE also have to comply. Um, and so it's what I found was that... Um, the problem with BBBE and technology transfer is that because there, it's such an important law and because um, it's so prominent and because actually BBBE has a specification within it which deals with skills development, um, people tend to rely on BBBE far too much. So what actually happens within these companies perhaps isn't a particularly strong transfer of technology. Um, but because Huawei and ZTE both comply with these um, BBBE requirements, um, when I interviewed people, they would say, oh, but they are compliant. Oh, we are compliant. Um, and this, you know, we're not we're not required to do more. And you find this a lot, I think, with with Chinese companies across the continent, which is that it's sometimes perhaps meaningless to talk about China, Africa, because they do such different things per every for every market and for every sort of um policy space. So within South Africa, it's a, it's a case of, well, we were required to do this much and this much skills development, and we have done this. Um, but this, you know, pales in the face of how much transfer is lost because of the amount of sort of managed services contracts that are signed, for example. Um, and so when you have companies complying with BBBE, but they are just sort of hiring people to fill a quota or perhaps not engaging in serious localization or breaking down of cultural barriers, which would ease transfer, um, relying on this law is not enough. And this is this is a law, this is a criticism about BBE that's been applied quite broadly in, in other sectors for local companies as well. Um, um, so that, I mean, basically is just to sort of, it to prioritize the ICT sector, first of all, and technology transfer within that, um, we need to look beyond sort of what already exists in BBBE and make far more sort of industry specific um, demands of, of Huawei and ZTE in terms of technology transfer. But it's a complex issue, obviously. Um, uh, as for the recent elections, I'm, I'm hesitant to say exactly what kind of, I'm hesitant to speculate about what this will do. My feeling is that we're going to have to wait until the, the next elections to see, you know, what happens with the national government. 
Um, I think this is quite a good litmus test for what is about to happen. Um, but really what I and a lot of other researchers in South Africa have noticed is that there really needs to be a comprehensive rehaul, the um, overhaul of the of the South African ICT policy sector so that um, it needs to be an issue of national priority. This is something that is very difficult for uh, local governments to to organize because, you you know, you often have sort of things like national um, fiber optic or national Internet policies, which you just it's 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 rather pointless to do at a municipal level. Often you need sort of you need sort of to prioritize it very highly um, in, the, in the national government. And so the hope is that the new government will come in, um, whether, you know, whatever kind of government it may be, um, that they would really prioritize this. So I think ICT was quite a high priority under President Tabombeki, but since him, I think it's fallen by the wayside. And you have seen things um, in the South African um, Department of Telecommunications and Postal Services um, so the minister of, we've had, I think, seven ministers of communication, six ministers of communication in the past seven years, something like that, or seven ministers in the past six years. So it's been sort of a jumble of um, inconsistent policy and not enough prioritization. So really the hope is that, you know, if whatever government comes into place, will put a focus on ICT as a central tenet of development. Um, but it's questionable as to whether this will happen because I think I've also, I've also not really seen the opposition party, for example, pull together a, a particularly coherent ICT policy. Um, so it's a question of whether, you know, there will be the leadership there to, to really prioritize this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and hope the research will help, um, help with that prioritization. Well, hopefully. I I hope they mention your research uh, at at any uh, ministerial meeting coming up. (laughs) Yeah. Although I do question. um, So you know, I think that the the downward pressure from um, liberalization. um, You know, when the when there's this general trend to have more managed service contracts. Um, right. This and probably affects, um, the Chinese and American and the European companies, um, in similar ways. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. faced the pressure to sell their service at a whole wholesale level and then have, you know, fairly minimum uh, level of skills, training and transfer. Absolutely. And so I guess whether, I mean, yeah, so it really probably comes down to policy stipulations that would, um, that would be more specifically targeted towards these kinds of um, transfer needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting to ponder the level of or the degree of innovation and creativity that we might see in the future coming from these local, kind of from local uh, contexts, right? Um, so are these technology transfers going to just, you know, lead into knowing how Huawei operates and you just operate it, or is it going to lead into some eventually some South African um, uh, kind of a version, right, or, or um, yeah. equivalent of it? So it, it's always like, really what's interesting to me when these technology transfers is always, and so what, the question of, like, what's going to happen after this, right? So after the, yeah. the skills are transferred, uh, what do we hope for? Are we just hoping for people to know how to maintain and how to operate Huawei or are we just hoping for someday to see 
sort of organically coming, growing like industries for, um, um, I guess, local South African or whatever the context is, um, kind of versions of Huawei. So yeah, that's always, yeah, that's also going to be interesting to to follow and see. Yeah, I think just on that note, I would say that um, the telecommunications equipment industry by itself is um, the kind of industry that. Um, will be very difficult to sort of replicate, right? So, I mean, the whole kind of global telecoms equipment industry basically is a couple of firms. You've got Ericsson, Nokia, Alcatel, which was recently acquired by Nokia, Huawei, ZTE. That's nearly it. So previously you used to have Siemens um, and Cisco was a big player, but you see how the com- mm-hmm. how competitive the market has got, especially since Huawei and ZTE entered um, and you see these sort of forced um, mergers um, to, to, to cut costs. So I, I really do question um, whether on the equipment side, I think it's, it'll be very, very difficult for kind of homegrown companies to do, to replicate what Huawei and ZTE did. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, an, another side of technology transfer is indeed about access, right? So this was something that I didn't have the scope to look at because I was doing field work for three months. But the idea that... Um, if you increase access to internet, if you increase sort of, if you lower the cost of internet and you allow more people in South Africa to access the internet, that mm-hmm. will s- sort of spawn off, um, knock on effects that will increase the innovation of not just within the tech industry, but how this impacts the whole economy. You know, it's, it's an enabling right. sector. Right. So. Right. How it's used, yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. So whether if Huawei and ZTE are perhaps building um, equipment where the European incumbents wouldn't because it wasn't profitable, or if they are lowering prices for the end user in South Africa, these are all also really important consequences of technology entering a market. Um, and hopefully we'll see we'll see positive effects there. But as, this is a very long process and it's difficult to get right. Um, so we need to be vigilant about that (laughs) sure yeah and it's tricky question in terms of what exactly are you trying to maximize right with a technology transfer policy yeah Yeah, it's probably takes several economists to answer that question too (laughs) yeah all right i think with that uh we should probably move on to recommendations because this call has gone on a little this pause has gone on a little long Okay. So, um, Sorry. Say, no, no, a fascinating, uh, robust discussion. I'm quite happy to have it. I just don't want to bore our listeners too much. Yeah. So, yeah, so we want to recommendations. June, what do you recommend to our listeners? Well, um, as a Xi'an girl, I think I would like to recommend to those listeners who haven't tried it, I'd like to recommend a snack from Xi'an. It's called Liangpure in Chinese which translates to cold skin and it's a, it's a street food from Xi'an and it's a very delicious cold noodle. Um, the, recently in Oxford, a food stand has popped up selling this. So I'm, I'm wondering if the time that, that Liangpir is becoming globalized has come. Um, but I, I urge everyone to, to, tr- to try and find this wherever you're living. And if you can do, do taste it if you haven't, it's absolutely delicious. Cool. Excellent. Eating. What about yourself? Um, on the topic of globalization, um, I find very interesting, uh, about the news in China that, um, you know, basically Uber is selling, um, 
Uber and Didi,、uh, which is another Chinese、um, taxi hailing application.、Um, so Uber is basically selling its share to Didi,、um, or they form the joint company. But basically, means that Uber kind of have lost the Chinese market. So it's been quite interesting commentaries around this, and you know, with regard to、um, the the this. Different kinds of rules that you have to play in the Chinese market versus the global market. So,、uh, I think both the Economist and the New York Times、um, have some really interesting articles about about what this means and um and you know the difficulties for multinational companies now to really、um, gain ground、uh, footholds in Chinese、uh, market now. So, there you go. Fascinating stuff. Lena,、um, I am going to recommend、um, a Twitter account this time, and it's called Rising Powers in Global Governance.、Um, I just discovered this this past week. It's a global network for the study of rising powers in global governance,、um, and they are based in Istanbul. It's a group of researchers, but but, but it's obviously.、Um, Uh, transnational, so it's just based in Istanbul, but it's researchers from all over. And、uh, if if you if you care to follow global governance, I think、uh, we follow that、um, account because it actually has、um, excellent feed.、Um, so the、uh, I think the handle is at、uh, RPSG, which is Rising Powers Global Governance. So RPSG Governance,、um, and、uh, yeah, that's that's going to be my recommendation for today. Excellent.、Um, I have two very brief recommendations. One is、uh, Linden Vineyard. So I went to a, a winery、uh, with my wife, and it was quite lovely. And if you are in the D.C. area and are willing to, to drive out, let's say about an hour west, gorgeous, gorgeous rolling hills, and、um, what I'm told is really good wine. I don't actually know much about wine. And yeah, de- definitely a good way to to spend a weekend. And then the other thing I want, I want to recommend is、um, to、uh, during the Olympics to follow the exploits of a Mr. Ning Zetao, who is a Chinese swimmer who is apparently a very attractive man.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> and、uh, a lot of my、uh, a lot of my social media feeds have been blowing up with、uh, shirtless photos of this young gentleman. And and yeah, I wish him the best of luck, and、uh, during during the Olympics, he's a he is, a, is apparently、um, quite the male specimen. Fair enough. Fair enough. And、uh, before we sign off, June, how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter、um, at zs underscore June. Perfect. What do you tweet about? I tweet about China Africa.、Um, I tweet about various things, mostly about China Africa, but various things that I find interesting. <laughs> Excellent. Tremendous. All right, Eating. Let's move to you.、Um, people can find me on Twitter as well、uh, at Dao of Pu.、Um, D A O O F P O O H. Is that Dao of the Pooh? Is this the new account? Yes, I just got rid of the non-essential stuff. Okay, okay, excellent. <laughs> Thank you for the for the update. All right, Lena, what about yourself? 
Same. I, I, I'm on Twitter um, at l b e n a b d a l a a h, and I also tweet Chan Africa stuff. Often compete with Winslow, but most of the time I lose. So <laughs> no, you, you you have been beating me to stuff um, over the past few weeks. So uh, no, it's fun. Using the the Sino Africa hashtag, I, I think you're you're doing quite well. And and eating is also a very prolific. China, Africa, and sustainability person yeah. on Twitter all around, and yeah, I my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I tweet about China, Africa news, events, opinions, and Arcana. Um, I can also be found on CowriesRice.blogspot.com and www.CowriesRice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling China, Africa consultancy. And you know that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Miss Soon for joining us from Oxford, as well as African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, Buzzsprout, Google Play, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio from Macomb, Illinois, to share our podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike and Pulse Recordings for composing a theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. <laughs>